Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. This is Gabe BC. Uh, I'm just back from San Francisco where I was doing the Festival of the Impossible. Uh, while I was out there, I met an artist named Neil Mendoza. Um, we'd actually had met before at, at Currents New Media in Santa Fe, but uh, this time I got to spend some more time with Neil, and I thought he'd be a great person to have on this week's episode. So um, Neil uh, is a very interesting and unique artist who works with comedy, animals, mechanisms. Uh, he builds all of his own work, uh, and he's answered a question, what would a fish do if it could break things with a hammer? Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, excited to be here. <laughs> Before we um, talk about specific pieces, how would you sort of describe your work for people who have never experienced anything that you've done before? Most of my work has some kinetic element to it, so moving things, and most of it also has some software element. And there, within that canvas, there's a lot of different ways I work with things. A lot of my work involves found objects. A lot of it involves trying to work out different ways of bridging the virtual and the physical. So, um, and also because I work a lot with technology, a lot of my work explores themes of technology and I, because I use a lot of found objects and trash, a lot of it explores themes around that too. And how did you get started working with tech in, in your artwork? I mean, has it always been sort of intrinsic to the work you've been making? Like, were you hacking things apart as a kid? Like, did you take things, machines apart growing up? Or is that something you sort of started working with later on? No, I've always been a tinkerer. I think I would take stuff apart in my parents' house when I was like a young kid and put it back together. And most of the time it still worked after that. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I was like in school, I was super into art, like especially three dimensional stuff like sculpture and clay. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but then I went to university and studied math and computer science and got railroaded into a career doing more techie stuff. So I've been a games programmer and a web developer and worked on numerical analysis apps. And then, but I still had this creative gnaw, urge gnawing at me inside. And um, at one point I was working for an advertising agency and I saw someone working with processing and I started to realize that there are a lot of creative potentials. There's a lot of potential for working creatively with technology that I hadn't really realized before. Like the university program I went to was very dry and theoretical. And so then I started playing around on my own, creating arty stuff on the side. And it just went from there, really. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing dry about your work. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of I'm curious to talk about specific pieces. Uh, but before we, we talk about that, you know, you say you work with a lot of found or reclaimed objects. Um, why is that? Like, are you interested in sort of the trash, like the tech, uh, tech detritus that people leave around because we're kind of uh, accumulating so many of these leftover devices these days? Um, is, is that like an intrinsic theme to your work, would you say? I think there's multiple reasons. I think as an artist working with technology, it's very tempting to always want to play with and use the newest, shiniest toys. But also as an artist, you have the power to reuse and abuse and subvert these technologies so um and obviously it's yeah we, we are consuming resources at an insane rate so the more we can reuse and abuse the better but <laughs> also separate to that i think like working with found objects people already have like relationships and attachments to them and i really like being able to play with those uh 
emotions and thoughts and relationships that people already have i think it's a really nice way to connect people to your work if you're using found objects or objects that have some kind of nostalgia or existing place in people's minds yeah i'm thinking of a piece that you just uh did one of your more recent works called house party um which is Mm -hmm. literally sort of a party that takes place in a setup of a of a living room um can you describe how this piece works um well, this piece was made at Recology, which is a residency in San Francisco where they literally give you a studio in the middle of the rubbish dump and you get to go scavenge for materials. They give you a stipend and a studio and access to the place where people drop off their own trash. So um, that was the context for it. And when I was there, I was discovering a lot of kitschy 80s furniture with wood and I don't know I just really like this aesthetic so I started collecting it all and gradually I started to think of things I could do with it and I guess the place where society tells us we go to enjoy the spoils of our jobs is in our living rooms we just sit there and like (laughs) absorb tv and uh, so I, I thought it'd be really fun to bring one of these spaces to life and because it's residencies in San Francisco, there's a lot of tech trash as well. So the whole piece was powered by not only were the objects in it scavenged, but also the computers and microcontrollers were also all found in the trash. Because I guess San Francisco people are very good at throwing away. Good. <laughs> they just want like the next generation of everything. So they throw everything away immediately. Um, exactly. But it's great. I mean, so the, the room comes to life and kind of composes this. Uh, I, I, is it techno? I mean, it's a it's a full on beat that's happening. With the, <laughs> the books in the room and the shoes are tapping. And uh, it's sort of like there's a ghostly presence um, that, that appears in this room through sound. Yeah, sorry, you did a lot better job of explaining what it actually is than I did. <laughs> That's my job on this show, um, I, I found. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, that's pretty spot on. There's like a, a number of, like, it was it was a really fun process making it because I would find these objects and work out how they contribute to this musical piece. So there's a number of items in the room, each of them moves or has graphics on it that contribute to this overall musical piece. So there's like a painting on the wall of like, the Bay Bridge that becomes a waveform and there's like shoes that tap as you mentioned all the lamps in the room move there's a stack of uh, National Geographic that becomes a percussive like drum uh, so yeah yeah, it, it seems like interesting trying to, yeah. You use, you use this sort of like percussive music a lot in your work. I, I mean, do you have a background in music too? I mean, I'm thinking about like your work. Um, you know, you have your, your, ham, uh, not your hammer piece. We're going to talk about that in a second, but your electric knife orchestra piece, which is mm-hmm. a bunch of knives that are vibrated to play staying alive, right? <laughs> like, how did you come up with this idea? Like, are you trained in music? Um, I, I mean, I learned to play guitar badly when I was in school. I don't mm-hmm. think that counts. So. <laughs> um, I, I used to write electronic music and DJ electronic music and released a few tracks. So I guess I'm pretty familiar with like writing electronic music. And um, yeah, I'm DJing less and less now, but I think that I, my musical impulses must be coming out in my art. Yeah, you're creating so, whole rooms that are you know DJ experiences instead. I think that counts. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of them are like, the music I write for them is very similar to how I used to write music, like electronic music for release. It's all written in uh, Logic and then Logic outputs MIDI and then the MIDI goes into a microcontroller, which then tells each instrument in whichever installation it is how to move. 
<laughs> but why why knives playing staying alive <laughs> like what what is the connection there <laughs> i mean knives are dangerous you gotta be careful when <laughs> you gotta be staying like, alive when you're around them that's the that's the yeah, idea exactly. <laughs> how does it, that you know so many people it, ask how do these ideas come to an artist though that's a question i get all the time is like you know how do you make the jump from okay it's the bgs to i'm gonna make a very cleanly fabricated knife symphony like where does that come into your mind I mean, I think different people have different approaches to getting weird ideas. My approach is very hands-on. I'll start with a seed of an idea and then it'll develop from there. And the knives came before the Bee Gees with, <laughs> with this project. Um, I, I was really interested, again, like I mentioned earlier, how different objects relate to experiences in people's lives. So uh, knives seem like something really interesting that kind of has this dangerous edge, like trying to take it and then make something that attracts people rather than scares people. Hmm. And so, I mean, the actual idea, thinking about it now, evolved from a different idea. I was going to make knife machines who would execute virtual stickmen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> but then the knife machines themselves seemed like such interesting objects that I lost the virtual stickmen and uh, it became <laughs> what it is on the internet today. Um, it's a very different aesthetic for uh, Knife Orchestra from the house party piece. Like the house party is very, like you said, like very 80s kind of kitsch and Knife Orchestra is super clean, um, almost like a design object. Uh, why, you know, how do you, how do you make these design choices when you make work like this? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a tension in my work between like the, the pieces which are purely fabricated and the pieces which are based on found objects. The found object ones tend to dictate their own aesthetic depending on what I'm working with. Uh, I, for things like the knife orchestra, I like to foreground the objects. So I, I think the cleaner the design of the other elements can be. The, the more people focus on the knives themselves. Hmm. It, was, it was interesting, actually, when the knife orchestra is sitting switched off, I, I think people feel a little intimidated, intimidated by it. But when it's actually playing music, they seem to want to go up to it and stick their fingers underneath these. Oh, wow. Things. Has that happened before? Have you had you know, some blood no, situations? I mean, like, I, I mean, every time I've shown it in public, I've had to put some stanchions around it to prevent that happening. But definitely when I've had friends there, I've had to be like, no, that doesn't seem like a good idea playing with high speed robotic knives. But, um, <laughs> but you're uh, sort of I, encouraging I, it at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I think I went off on a tangent there. What was your original question? I was just asking about the design style. I mean, you know, and, and your work does seem to have that tension between working with found objects where you are trying to cultivate sort of an overall look to it, like the 80s kitsch living room. But then you're also clearly from an industrial design background. I mean, I don't know if you have a background in industrial design, but it seems like you do from your pieces. Um, I think I, I don't, I mean, I've never had any formal training in industrial design. I, I guess I think the tools and software available for designing this kind of object lead me down a very specific path I, I guess that they allow you to create this really like sharp clean look which I, I think yeah can work well for foregrounding the objects but yeah the house party is like the there is no background to the objects that the objects are the piece so I suppose the pieces where you get this clean industrial design look is where I, the 
the machines themselves are part of the piece. Uh, so they're both part of the piece, but not trying to pull your attention away from the action too much. Yeah, that's a tricky balance. I mean, how do you feel about working with machines so often in your work? I mean, I feel like because machines are becoming more and more part of our lives and, you know, we think about AI and how that's going to change the way we relate to machines. But do you see machines as like a collaborator in your work or do you have full control over them all the time? I, I see machines as a collaborator. I think it's really important for artists to be working with machines and AI as well, because a lot of the times how these things will appear in our lives are dictated by interests which may not align with our interests as human beings a lot of times it's companies trying to get us to buy more products or spend more time on their platform so i think it's really useful for artists to be exploring ways that these machines can materialize and using them for slightly whimsical purposes which may inspire people looking at the objects to reconsider what technology could be um but um yeah, I mean, I think it makes yeah, total I, sense. I mean, I, so this brings me to the piece that I wanted to talk about since the beginning, but I've been holding back, uh, <laughs> which is Fish Hammer. Uh, <laughs> so Fish Hammer, your description is people love to break ocean stuff. The Fish Hammer <laughs> empowers fish to break people stuff. And it is just that it's a fish, a goldfish in a tank uh, surrounded by tiny furniture. And the fish has its own hammer and the hammer can go and break whatever furniture it wants. Right. So the yeah. fish is being tracked. Is that how it's working? Yeah, so there's a webcam above the uh, fish tank, and the, uh, it's using computer vision to work out where the fish is in, is in the tank, and then his position determines the position of the hammer. When I actually made this, I was trying to work out the best way to track the fish, and I realized if I got gravel that was a contrasting color to the fish, then it would be really easy to track. So I think the people in the aquarium store thought it was a little crazy when I went in there and was trying to find the most orange possible goldfish. <laughs> You're like comparing goldfish in the aquarium. It's like I must find the best goldfish for computer vision. Eventually, the guy just gave me the net and was like, okay, come back to me. <laughs> Go fishing. Uh, what was the insp inspiration for this piece? Like, again, you know, we talked about the inspiration for House Party being the objects and the knife orchestra, thinking about, you know, how you wanted to cut up these stick figures with knives. I mean, did you did you were you thinking about sort of like the environmental impact first or did it come with this vision of i want to see what happens when i give a fish a hammer <laughs> um i think originally there was a slightly less emphasis on the environmental aspect it was definitely like related to empowering a fish uh because yeah there, a lot of times animals have no say in how they play a role in the environment today but uh, I also like the just the absurdity of the image of a fish being able to wield a hammer. I, I wasn't sure exactly what things he was going to break at the beginning. I just knew that I thought it would be good to give a fish a hammer. And then as the idea evolved, the furniture seemed to make more and more sense. And uh, does the fish understand that it has the agency and control to be able to break things? Or is it just sort of like swimming around doing its normal thing? So that, that's a great question and a question I think a lot of people at the gallery were asking because it's really hard to know. But I've actually shown this piece a couple of times. So the first time was in America and uh, the American fish seemed to care a lot less about what was happening outside. He was just happy to sit there and do nothing. 
The second time I showed it was in Japan, and he seemed to be really enjoying this process of destroying things and playing with this weird object that was outside of his tank. But um, yeah, also no fish were harmed in the process of making this. They're both happily living out their lives in America and Japan as we speak. So they're separate fish. They, you, you know, these are like yeah, fish celebrities. Mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the American fish is called smashy, and the Japanese fish is called dashy. Originally, it was called smashy go, but uh, yeah, the new foster owner changed his name to dashy. <laughs> and there's obviously like an inherent humor in this piece. Um, you know, and in a lot of your work, I think that there's sort of a, a, a sort of sly wit to it. Um, can you talk a little bit about like working with pieces that have humorous out- outcomes? I mean, there's a lot of artists throughout history that, um, work with humor, you know, I'm thinking of like John Baldessari or Hannah Hawk or, you know, even like Marcel Duchamp. Um, mm-hmm. but I feel like humor sometimes is looked down upon in the art world. Um, yeah, have you found sure. sort of I a, think it's a reaction like that? I mean, it's definitely a fine balance, I think, especially with that fish piece. For instance, if you're talking about something like the environment, it's good not to be didactic, to use humor as a method to connect to people. And maybe I think that piece would probably have a more lasting impression. People think about it more than something that is very straightforward. But like you say, yeah, it's, it's a fine line. I think a lot of people think art should be something that's very serious and like you have to sit and stroke your beard and try and work out what it is but um so yeah i think a touch of humor is great i mean i I think people like magritte as well their their Mm -hmm. work is very humorous but it's very low-key humorous so um yeah it's dealing with the actual human themes but in a in a humorous way and humor is part of life so why would you ignore it when it comes to art you know yeah i think it's putting people in a position where like it's not you know like one-liner joke humorous where it's like absurd humorous and they they giving the audience a chance to kind of hmm, giving the audience a chance to absorb both the humorous side of it but also like realize that possibly as an underlying message i think if it's just humorous for the sake of being humorous maybe it's gonna have less long-lasting impact on viewers right yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think um, there is something darkly humorous about your work, I would say. Um, you know, I'm also thinking of your piece, uh, Hamster Powered Hamster Drawing Machine, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which kind of is a reflection on selfie culture in general. I mean, can you describe how that piece works? So um, so there's a video of a hamster running around the wheel. And uh as he runs around his wheel, he drives a machine that can only draw pictures of hamsters. So it's a mechanical machine with a hamster drawing encoded into the mechanics of it. And every time the hamster in the piece runs around the wheel, he drives this machine to draw a picture of a hamster. So yeah, I think there's both these like themes of like selfie culture and also work, you know, what like labor, like all this hamster can do is sit in this machine and drive it. Um, I actually also had a couple of let, uh, emails from people who thought that there was a real hamster in the machine rather than a, a video of the hamster, and hmm. I was <laughs> I was abusing him by keeping him in a ten inch enclosure. But yeah, no, it's just a tiny little video. But, uh, <laughs> are, are these pieces like you're using animals a lot in these pieces? And I'm wondering if the animals are sort of 
stand-ins for you sometimes. Like, are you the the hamster that's running on the wheel and making portraits of yourself? <laughs> yeah, possibly. I feel like the as a comment on like work and uh, how humans play a role in society, maybe I am the hamster wondering <laughs> what, what I'm doing, creating all this stuff. Um, I think also humans, like especially at this point in time, have a very complex relationship with nature. We need it to survive, but we treat it like it's a machine. So, uh, yeah, we, ha- we have a very fraught relationship with nature. It, it's almost as if we want to change our relationship with nature, but we can't because society has too much momentum going in a certain direction. Right, and our tech devices are becoming what we consider to be nature in a way. Um, yeah. which is disturbing. Um, exactly. You, you just look at a picture of the beach on our cell phones. Why would you need to go to an actual real beach with sand and water and stuff? Right. I mean, that's sort of in your piece, uh, the escape series, right? The escape series is sort of these birds that are created with cell phone um, screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. you're kind of like spoofing so, nature with these technological means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you could, they're, they're robotic birds made out of cell phone junk. Like, when I first created this piece, I was thinking about what makes a cell phone a cell phone, and they make quite annoying, intrusive noises. So I started to think about ways you, when in life do people think high pitched, intrusive noises are positive? And so I came up with bird songs. So that was like the seed of this idea. So we started playing around making these uh, robotic birds, and you can call, call them. They have a phone number and they have a SIM card in them, and they'll like flap their wings and wake up and then start calling these other robotic birds in this tree. Um, but yeah, that, that was very much exploring this idea of, you know, surrogate nature, I guess. What's, what's going to happen if all the bees die? Is we going to have, if all the bees die, are we going to have to make robot bees to replace them or are people going to have to go around and pollinate each plant one at a time? Hmm. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> With bees? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I hope we stop using so many pesticides and then I think they'll probably be fine. Yeah. But who knows? Do do you see your work as um, environmental activist work? I mean, you deal with a lot of, Um, you know, you deal with climate change a lot in your work. You deal with the idea of trash in the oceans with like fish hammer, but it's in a sort of a subtle way sometimes. I'm kind of curious how you how your work kind of fits into this idea of environmental activism. uh, I don't see myself as an environmental activist. I think I'm just making work in the context that I exist in. And at the moment, there's. Yeah, a lot of not good stuff happening with our relationship to nature and the climate. So I think it just naturally comes out. I'm not trying to be an environmental activist. I think it's just a, a contextual thing. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But, uh, um, but I think I also like viewers to take something away from my work. And maybe that's why it creeps in. Um, I don't know. Animals are awesome, too. I mean... I, <laughs> Have you had yeah. like pets growing up? Is that is that where these come? A lot of these ideas come from. Uh, my brother actually was asthmatic, so we weren't allowed a cat or a dog. So I had weird pets. I had like birds and snakes and stuff. So um, yeah, I guess I've, I've made a lot of bird related art. So maybe huh. maybe, maybe you you found me out. Yeah, I'm wondering if we almost think of our cell phones as uh, kind of pets today, too. Like we're constantly maintaining them and upgrading them and feeding them with more information. (laughs) And that's what I'm thinking about with your your escape series. Yeah, no, totally. It's like 
they are like surrogate pets. Um, you have to feed them electricity every night, otherwise they'll die. Um, yeah, I I think it was really nice with that piece as well when you would like go into a gallery and people would be filled with this sense of wonder just because they immediately understood this. Oh, it's cell phones. Oh, and it's a bird. And it's like, it's, they got it, but then they, they, it wasn't so much of a one line that they just then walked on. They, they enjoyed the experience of like playing with and exploring what that interaction might be like with a robot bird. Um, so I, I mean, again, I guess like I mentioned that I like working with found objects because people have, these relationships to them already, which you can play with. And I think it's the same with animals. People already have this relationships to them, which you can play with and challenge and explore when you use them in your work. And, and have you had some pushback from people? I mean, you mentioned a little bit that people thought this hamster was a real hamster. I mean, um, I guess that the only piece that I've made, which actually has a live animal in it, is the fish piece. And the fish was living in like as good as, if not better, conditions in any goldfish i've seen like he was in a tank that was big enough for him and he was well fed and his water was clean so um i i I mean i do have some slight issues with it the the fish had no choice in being there Mm. uh but on the flip side i say he was living in as good as conditions as he would have been any other as anyone else's pet fish and i think it's yeah, it's, I guess in art in general, there's this like interesting line between when you make something that's about a subject, it can start to become the negative aspects of that subject. Um, uh, there was an artist, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, who like uh, paid a load of girls to tattoo a line across their back. So yeah. it's a mm-hmm. common exploitation. It's like, yeah, where does, where does, uh, where does the line between art and exploitation get drawn? Right, especially yeah, with with people, you know, obviously people are more sensitive to that, and with animals too. There's a big like uh, ethical question about how, how do these beings participate in work, right? Although I'm kind of interested from a tech perspective too. I, I wonder if there'll be a point where AI will have to give some sort of consent to be part of a work. <laughs> Do you know? Like, I don't know. I'm just kind of extrapolating here, but I'm um, thinking about the future of how people will work with uh, AI in their work or robotics or avatars. Do you think there'll be a point where that'll become an ethical concern as well? I mean, we're sort of seeing that now. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be a long way off before it's actually an ethical concern based on, I think, my like looking back at how human beings in general react to other beings and species like they they keep on taking advantage of them until the last possible moment Mm -hmm. but i think it might happen at some stage and i mean even like when boston dynamics the robotics company made a made a video where someone was pushing a robot and abusing it you got a fair bit of pushback from people on the internet in the comments of that video so um i think i think yeah once things become more anthropomorphic and more easy to project human-like emotions onto then i think people that'll enter the conversation a bit more yeah you definitely i mean it seems like you're you're walking a fine line with this anthropomorphic idea already in your work um (laughs) you know the idea that we are kind of acting like machines when we observe this fish hammer or i'm even thinking about your piece uh robot voice activated kicking machine 
mm-hmm. where it's really a, a human interacting with a machine, but they're, they both needed to complete the work. Um, like you walk into this room and there's a big projection uh, with these two funnels, right? And when you speak into one of the funnels, it translates your language into uh, projected words. And then mm-hmm. what, what happens with those words? Uh, so the words, yeah, they you speak them and they become part of this projection. And then there's a real robotic foot attached to the wall. And if your words come near the robotic foot, they get kicked by it. I think at the time when I made this, I was thinking a lot about all of these personal assistants like Google Home and Alexa and Siri. And when we speak to them, we like to imagine that we're speaking to a friend who's wrapped up in our mobile phone, but really our words get transmitted off to a cloud somewhere. And then then whichever company they get transmitted to are free to do basically whatever they want with them based Mm -hmm. on their supposed privacy policy. So this was a kind of physical manifestation of that. But as you mentioned, it's kind of it's a blank canvas and it need, it's a piece that needs people to become a thing. And I, I think it's really interesting creating a piece that allows different people to make it into what they want. Because when pe- different groups would use it, you would get different dynamics coming out. Like some people would want to break it with long words. Some people would want to swear at it. Some people would want to put political messaging into it. So yeah, I think it's a nice it became this collaboration between the human and the machine to make something that was ever changing as the exhibition went on. And where does the foot come in? (laughs) Because there's this odd interaction where there is a giant mechanical foot that if the letters happen to grace, uh, the foot just kind of kicks them around. Like where did that inspiration come from? (laughs) The inspiration for it? Yeah. Uh, Again, it was like part the absurdity of it and partly this idea of like our oh, words just fly off into the cloud and can get used and abused however these companies see fit so it was like a, some kind of combination between those two things i think i'm drawn to iconic objects in my work so like fish or feet or I, I, anything you might find in like a maybe roadrunner cartoon as one of wiley coyote's uh, roadrunner catching devices Th- those kind of iconic images are pretty fun to play with um so yeah having this real robot foot kick these virtual words seemed to me to be a, 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 a really pleasant interaction yeah i could see that that style in your work i mean there are, you do often have like giant hands like almost like mickey mouse glove hands in, in your pieces or these giant dis, you know dismembered feet <laughs> um were you like a big fan of of cartoons is that where this comes from or is there something it almost seems like there's something really light about that but then in combination with sort of a darker tone that you're exploring like if you're exploring surveillance with this piece with robot voice activated kicking machine but you're using sort of a cartoony foot (laughs) is that is, is that what you're going for that sort of juxtaposition of these two images yeah i think so i think again it's similar to the fish hammer it's like you you have this maybe slightly uncomfortable topic you want to explore. And if you approach it from this absurd angle, it makes it more accessible to people. And I hope that maybe sticks around with them longer. And if they want to devote the brain power to try and think about what it might be about, like it's going to be more likely to happen if it's floating around in their brain because of this absurdism that attracted them to it in the first place. How do people uh, react to your work in general? Like, what is it that they have a sense of wonder about it? Or are they disturbed? <laughs> I think not disturbed. I mean, I made a couple of pieces that maybe were slightly more disturbing. And those tended to be the pieces without these 
slightly absurd elements they were obviously darker but i think a, a sense of wonder and then I, I, normally when i talk to people they'll be first stage one is you know playing with it and enjoying it and then they'll start to ask me or contemplate why why did you make this what's it about so yeah i think there's those are the general reactions i have um <laughs> at the moment in my work i'm kind of tempted to try and make stuff that's a, a little less complex that involves fewer elements to allow people to interpret it in a more free way i think the more information you have in a piece of work the more the more limited with the more limited are the number of ways that people can interpret it so i'm also interested in making things which are open to people co-creating with it if that makes sense hmm. now, what, what kind of stuff are you working on right now um exploring different ways of uh bridging the physical and the digital so i mean i'm just about to go and start another residency at a museum in pittsburgh so i think i'm interested in making some kinetic sculptures with some objects i find there uh, i mean uh, i've just finished a piece of work and i i'm kind of at the seed stage with lots of different ideas um i mean one idea i have is to make a piece of work that is controlled by chickens but again you get back, <laughs> back uh, to this am i exploiting the chickens even if they're in as comfortable a situation as they could be <laughs> so are you going to end up using real chicken like live chickens or are you still i mean trucks? i would like to i mean i don't think it's going to happen for this museum project because they're not allowed to have animals in the <laughs> museum but I, again i think even more than with a fish it's like even if the chicken is as comfortable as or more comfortable than he she would be in any situation he'd be living in is it exploitative because the chicken didn't really choose to be part of an art installation right i um, suppose there probably could be some kind of service to um monitor the chicken's health right for the art show for the duration of the art show <laughs> i've seen yeah. things like that before when people uh, work with animals in their work um, but it is an interesting question, like an interesting ethical question to pose. I mean, you guess you could use virtual animals, like the pieces that you just completed in San Francisco. Those were a series that had virtual animals, right? That you would interact with physically. Yeah, but I feel like it takes away a, a, a degree of freedom. Hmm. That, like uh, the people who are watching it are, are familiar with like CGI movies and they're familiar with software and it, it's like... They don't feel like they're, they're, they're even if it, the virtual creature may do something unexpected, it doesn't feel that unexpected because people are so used to interacting with virtual creatures in games. Um, right. That's interesting. And so do you then tend to favor pieces that are highly physical over virtual? I don't think so. I think having, so, I think what I like is having some as much as many unexpected elements as possible. Mm. So either places where the audience can contribute or where the elements in the piece are a complete mystery to the audience. They're not sure why or what they're doing. I mean, there's there's definitely rhyme or reason to them. They, they, they make sense when they're doing it, but the audience are not sure exactly what thing they're gonna do next. How do you, how do you design for something? I mean, this is something I face too when you're making an interactive piece. How do you deal with an unexpected consequence uh, that's introduced through interaction with your work? 
Uh, I mean, I guess that's like part of the beauty and part of the pain of making intera- interactive <laughs> stuff. Uh, a lot of times until you first show it, you're not really sure what it's going to be because it's being co-created with the audience. But I think, yeah, just being cognizant that people will try and explore the the boundaries of your system and break it as much as possible and do things you might not have expected and trying trying to allow for that. But um, yeah, I think keeping interaction interesting is key. If you make something that's obviously very obviously cause and effect, people identify that very quickly and they'll be like, cause, effect, cause, effect. Okay, I'm bored now. I'm going to move into onto the next piece. Right. If you can make something that's sort of alive in a way, you can, yeah. you can make people think differently about your work. Uh, yeah. Or that might be why you want to work with live chickens, right? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know what a live chicken is going to do suddenly <laughs> in an artwork. And you get free eggs as well. Right. <laughs> also the benefit. Uh, yeah, you seem to have eggs in your projects a lot too, from what I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I made a piece called Existential Angst. <laughs> what was, what was so, that? Uh, it was a large pendulum that would balance uh, inverted using the same way that using the same technology that satellites use to keep their orientation so it would balance upside down and when it would lose its balance it would then swing quite aggressively downwards and at the bottom of where the pendulum would swing was an egg and the egg was on a motorized pole and we're trying to avoid getting smashed by this huge pendulum so it was a kind of dance between these two physical objects and even though that was kind of a simple interaction it had this element of unexpectedness because this pendulum was trying to balance, but it was a physical world that would determine when it lost its balance and went to mm. attack the egg. So it's like this, yeah, I think tension is like something that I'm interested in exploring as well. Like, even though that was obvious what was going to happen, you didn't know when it was going to happen or how or whether the egg would survive the interaction. Yeah, I mean, the tension is in all the work we've talked about so far. I mean, the fish hammer is a perfect example of tension, right? This hammer is looming there and there's a fish <laughs> sort of <laughs> calmly controlling what could destroy a whole <laughs> tiny village. Uh, Evil must fish. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of a Godzilla element to that piece too. Um, so is there anything that you think in terms of art and tech that's kind of overhyped or overdone now in terms of how people are using technology in, in the arts? Um, I mean, I think it comes in like hype cycles. People always use, like gravitate towards the newest, shiniest thing. Like a few years ago, it was projection mapping, then it was Connect. And I think at the moment, it's probably VR and AI. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think both of those both of those technologies have amazing potential to create innovative work, but a lot, a lot of it tends to be quite formulaic. I think part of the issue with AI might be that a lot of the machine learning algorithms are really complicated. And unless you have a doctorate in AI, it's going to be hard to make something that's not derivative of existing libraries out there. Sure. Um, so people are working think- with like these new tools that they don't have enough time to sort of master. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are really complicated as well. You need like a lot of education to master. So I think, but I mean, it's always been like that, that artwork a little, or design is a little bit determined by the tools that are available. Like when Photoshop first came out with all their filters, like people kept using all the Photoshop filters in design work. But um, I feel like we're at that stage with AI, everyone is using the uh, libraries that are out there to create work, which ends up being similar but 
I think, yeah, I, I, a lot of AI stuff as well is about generating images. I think it's going to be really interesting when it gets more to using AI to generate art pieces about interaction, whether that's uh, controlling robots or, I mean, I guess even the robotic voice activated word kicking machine uses an AI speech to text on the back end. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, th- I think when you start, yeah, get, start, start thinking about these technologies in outside of the norm. Okay? Like I, I think in general, like I mentioned that before, uh, that's the beauty of art with technology. You can think of uses for it that maybe haven't been thought of before because you're not, you're not using technology like someone who's designing a product with just like, I have to get to this end. So I'm going to go through these different channels. It's more like as an artist, you're free to just experiment and break the system and put it in context that hadn't been thought of before and see how it reacts. So, uh, and I think, yeah, over the next few years, we're probably going to see some really interesting work in that area. Yeah. And hopefully it will involve, um, AI chickens. That's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> well, Neil, thank you so much. This has been super interesting. Um, I think we've touched on some great topics and uh, we're going to put a lot of the work up on Instagram for people to check out too. I know we talked about a lot of visual work, which is always difficult to describe over a podcast. Um, before we go, though, we do a tradition here on State of the Art where I do rapid fire questions at the end of every episode. Um, and these are questions that are not related to your work, uh, but they're just kind of fun questions that will give us more of an idea of who you are as an artist and as a person. Um, so it's really just the first thing that pops in your mind when I ask you these questions. So don't overthink it. There's no wrong yeah. answers. Um, so here we go. Um, if you met a magical wizard and had to be turned into an animal, uh, which animal would it be and why? Uh, giraffe, because <laughs> they are very tall and very pretty. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, if you had to pick one object uh, to live with that would basically help you, like on a desert island, um, which object would you pick and why? Bed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just a bed? Like, it'd be an island with just one bed in the middle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if you don't get a good night's sleep, you'll be even more depressed that you're stuck on an island at least then. You, could, like, work on <laughs> you wouldn't like plans. You wouldn't want like a boat. You just want like stay on the island, but uh, it'll be with the bed. I like it. <laughs> a boat would probably be smarter. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess here's one last question for you. Um, Neil, what is your uh, most guilty pleasure song? Uh-oh. Uh, that's a tough one. I mean... <laughs> You can't touch this, but MC Hammer is pretty awesome. But I've actually listened to it recently. I can't wait for like uh, you can't touch this played by actual hammers. That'll be like the next <laughs> piece. I'm Don't hoping to see for you. Maybe we can uh, end the podcast here, and we'll play a little bit of uh, "Staying Alive" on the Electric Knife Orchestra um, as a way to kind of go out of the show. But thank you so much, Neil uh, Neil Mendoza uh, for State of the Art. This is Gabe Garcia Colombo. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Neil. Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, This is Gabe Barcia Colombo for the State of the Art podcast. Uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, We have a great, fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson. uh, And our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, So stay tuned for next week. Uh, We're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it. Bye.